If you're taking notes tonight, I've titled our time in God's Word tonight, Transforming Grace. Uh, Transforming Grace. And we'll look at three things tonight uh, that hopefully give us some application on how, how, to, how to live what Paul writes here. And, I, and I'll admit that uh, as a lot of the things that Paul writes, particularly in the book of Romans, not exclusively in the book of Romans, but particularly in the book of Romans, Paul has a lot of repetitive themes, not only that cross various chapters, in this case grace, uh, but also repetitive themes in a specific chapter like this particular one, uh, the fact that we're dead to sin, the fact that Christ died once, uh, that we're no longer slaves uh, to sin, that we're now slaves unto righteousness. And you actually see kind of this pattern through the, through the chapter where he retraces some steps every three or four verses, goes back and then pulls forward, back and then pulls forward, goes back and then he pulls forward. So it's a good teaching style uh, when you, if those of you have ever taught, you actually retrace a few steps even as you teach and as you go through. People see, start to, it sinks in what, uh, what Paul's trying to convey. But the three things that we'll look at tonight, recognition, resolve, and reward. Recognition, resolve, and reward. And I want to start with recognition because I think Paul, what he, what he starts with here is he wants the believer to understand where they stand. That makes sense? If you're born again, what does that mean? In relation to what has God done in you that your life, which formerly was controlled by your sinful desires, your flesh, whatever you felt like doing, you were controlled by your feelings. So Paul said that That's who you used to be. Paul said, I want you to recognize who you are today. And if I could draw, you know, some kind of illustration of that. Um, If you think about, if you were to uh, bring someone here from another country, and and missionaries have talked about this before, where they've gone to other countries where uh, you could give someone in, uh, you know, I read the letter from Brother Felix uh, in the Amazon. So you go in the heart of the Amazon where, uh, you know, they actually, by the way, even the heart of the Amazon, they now have cell phones, but they still live very primitive, right? Other than the cell phone, which everyone has now around the world, no matter where you go, mud huts have cell phones now. But everything else is primitive. And amazingly, though they, they see value in a cell phone, if you were to give them, in some of the primitive cultures uh, down in the Amazon, for example, if you were to give them a $100 bill, and missionaries have actually uh, testified this, they think, what, why are you giving me a worthless piece of paper? I can't eat this. I can't do anything with this. What, why are you giving me a worthless piece of paper? It doesn't make, and I can't even really write on it because I wouldn't even see what I'm writing on. right? But if you actually explain to them, no, no, take this, and next time you actually go into town, let's say you make the two-day journey into a larger city, give someone this $100 bill, and they'll actually exchange it back in pesos or whatever, and you can buy enough flour or whatever for your family for a while. Oh, I didn't know I had that in my hand. And this is what Paul is saying to the believer. You got saved, you've been born again, and you have a get-out-of-jail card for any and all sin. Does that make sense? That's what Paul wants to start out with. He says, you have a get-out-of-jail card, effectively, for any and all sin. And did, did you mean any and all sin? Any and all sin. And God will start to then... Now, some of the things God won't show you uh, immediately, but the ones He shows you immediately, He has given us the power. So He wants us to recognize, first of all, shall we continue in sin... Well, certainly not. Because of grace, when you, know, you look at the previous chapters, we, we've been looking at grace quite a bit back in uh, chapter 5 and chapter 4. Uh, from a natural viewpoint, even a secular viewpoint, grace in and of itself is a dangerous word. Because uh, a lot of people don't believe in or teach grace because uh, you know, if if it's not something you're doing, 
right? If it's not something you have done to earn your salvation, then if you teach grace, then people will get the concept that it doesn't matter what I do, God forgives it and covers it, right? So it's almost, a, for some people, it's a scary thing to teach, but, but that is only true in the respect of, you know, prior to Christ, God is willing to forgive anything we've ever done and cover us by his grace. Well, did you mean that he won't cover things after salvation? Of course he'll cover things after salvation. But the viewpoint of grace, or I should say, not the viewpoint, the outworking of grace has a different work going forward. In other words, when you got saved, that grace covered all your sin. And the same grace will still cover when you fall and when you skin your knees and when you do something you shouldn't have done or don't do something you should have done. Grace still covers those things too. But grace is magnified far beyond the initial work of salvation once you are saved in that it begins to actually impart to you light, wisdom, power, direction, and release from the things that you used to be in bondage in. So, uh, and, but a lot of people, because they don't understand grace, they revert back to the law and say, no, 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 just do these 15 things or these 20 things or these things and, uh, and you will prove to God how faithful you are, right? Whereas we know that if you actually live under grace, I think Chuck, Chuck Swindoll said this years ago and, and it's always stuck with me, he said the most holy people he's ever met in his life are those that actually truly understand grace. Because they don't abuse grace. They're so thankful to God for grace that, that, that constantly the grace of God puts them back on their knees asking for his forgiveness, asking for his power, asking for his presence. You done that lately? I mean, hopefully you've done that today, right? Because you'll need grace every day. Every day. We're too flawed not to have grace every day. So Paul starts off with, you know, do we, uh, do we kind of exercise grace by sinning more that God could pour out more grace? No, no, no. Now the grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you from falling back into sin, right? So at first, it was, it was a life preserver thrown from the boat, Right? Now that you're in the boat, the great ta- grace takes a new form. Now it's the high railing around the boat that keeps you from falling back in. Make sense? So it's the same grace, but it takes a different form. Life preserver, you grabbed it, you pulled in. You're on the boat now, the deck is really wet, the wind is, and you grab the railing so you don't fall back in. Same grace, different form factor, if you will. What's taken place here, he says, um, certainly not, verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And I'll just rattle off a few things in a row that uh, that Paul highlights here, and it's not exhaustive in the text because we don't have time to cover them all, but the first one we'll look at uh, right here in the verse, verse 7, you see it as well. Verse 7 says, for he who died has died has been freed from sin. All right. First truth Paul conveys, recognition of this fact. These are facts. The control of sin has ended to the born-again believer. You say, well, I don't feel that. doesn't matter if you feel it. Did God say it? Yes. Well, I don't feel that at all. I'm going to say it again. doesn't matter if you feel that. God said it. The control of sin has ended for the born-again believer. Well, that's, that's weird because I've been sinning lately. Well, we'll get to that. That doesn't negate the truth that the control of sin has ended. We'll get to, before we get out of here, how do you appropriate God's gateway for that through grace? Well, it's through grace. And we'll, uh, we'll look at that uh, in our second bullet point, Resolve. The second point, I'm just rattling through these so we understand what Paul wants to recognize. Uh, the second thing um, of this list is we're now dead to sin. 
We're dead to sin. But again, this is why Jesus said, go into all the world and make confessions, converts, no, disciples. Disciples need to be taught. Disciple is someone who is an apprentice. Uh, Jesus, it, it comes from the same word, discipline. Uh, great coaches discipline and teach the fundamentals to the team. The team learns the fundamentals, applies the fundamentals, and they go from no wins to six wins to eight wins to ten wins, right? As they apply the fundamentals, they see victory begin to take place, and then they grow in that. Same principle. We are dead to sin, but just like my illustration of the person in the Amazon, if they don't know the value of what's in their hand, they don't know. Hey, Christian, you're dead to sin. I don't feel dead to sin. I know, but you are. Paul's like, good news. I'm here to tell you that you, it doesn't have control over you, and you're dead to it. Which is great news, because if the, if the world tries to tell you, or your own flesh tries to tell you, well, I can't do such and so uh, unless, um, unless I have this or that in my life, and God's, no, you don't need that. You're dead to sin. Another item that he says here, we're baptized into Christ and his death. We're baptized into Christ and his death. What is, uh, what is he saying here? Well, there's a lot of uh, the, the, the ancient Greek word for baptism or baptize is to immerse or to overwhelm something, to immerse it. And in this case, we're immersed into Christ's body. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're immersed into his body. And, and when you think about it, if you've been immersed into Jesus' body, is Jesus controlled by sin? No. Uh, can death touch him anymore? No. Uh, does he have power? Yes. Think it through. Paul's saying you've, you were actually placed into the perfection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. His death, he'll never die again. Therefore, Jesus says, you'll never die again. Well, I'll die physically. That, that's true, but you'll live forever with him. You won't experience the second death, which the scriptures talk about. You're baptized into Christ. Now, there's other, there's other baptisms. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, there is, you know, to be uh, baptized by Christ. In this case, baptism into Christ. And when we baptize by Christ and we, uh, with salvation, but then we also have water baptism. You know, we, we're baptized uh, as a profession of faith in Christ. But Paul's not talking about these other baptisms. He's talking about just the fact that Christ has baptized you into his own body. So we're baptized into Christ and his death. So when Jesus died, when he died, he was so in tune with the Father that he was able to block out all the fleshly impulses that would say, don't go to the cross. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, he, he sweat as it were. He even said, if, Father, you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And that was a temptation. Remember, Satan had already tempted him in the wilderness to tempt him uh, to sin, and, and Jesus never yielded. And the final nail in the coffin to death, to Satan, and to sin was when Jesus did, in fact, go to the cross. He resisted all inclination of the flesh. He said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. He could have called 10,000 angels or legions of angels, right? He could have done all these things, and all that would have been yielding. Well, it would have been going against the will of the Father because the Father said, I've sent you to do one thing, to die. And he accomplished it. He said, his death brought victory, and you have been baptized into that victory. That I know that death is, is horrific, especially the death on the cross, and to see Christ suffer, but that suffering is victory for the rest of us. Of course, it was victory for Christ too. Another thing he points out here, in dying to our old nature, 
and dying to our old nature, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him. When we die to our old nature, we now walk in newness. We walk in newness, newness of life. You know 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become, and, and that really means becoming, a continuous becoming of new. These things are all becoming new. And the last thing that I want to point out that he mentions here is we eventually, we eventually will be in the likeness of the resurrection of Christ. We'll eventually be just like his resurrection. In verse 5, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be, shall be, future tense, shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, we're already uh, there, there is, there is an aspect that we're already in his resurrection, but we don't have his complete likeness yet, do we? Anyone walking through walls or uh, just kind of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, appearing out of nowhere and, uh, and your body's perfect? If you have a single ache and pain like me, then no, you don't have a resurrected body here tonight. But you eventually will have his likeness. And Paul wants us to recognize that, to say, yes. I know, you know, that there's flaws still in your body. But you are, you are actually dead to sin. It doesn't have control over you anymore. You've been baptized into Christ's death. You've been baptized into his resurrection. And you will be getting his glorified body. That's coming. Why is Paul setting that out, out in front? Why did he put everything else he said is present tense? Why did he put that out there? Remember in Hebrews 11, it talks about that, that the patriarchs, they looked towards heaven, a place they had not yet attained to, uh, to remind us that now Paul's going to get into in the, my last two bullet points to resolve and reward. You can't stay in the battle unless you know what the end result is going to be, right? But if, you, if, if someone tells you, say, do not retreat, we are actually going to win as long as we don't retreat. Or if Jesus, you have to hear it from Jesus because I don't know about you, but I don't care how much I trust any one of you. If you tell me, and we're in a literal physical war, and you tell me, hey, stay in this, we're going to win it. I want to believe you, but I don't think you know everything. And I don't think you think I know everything. And we're kind of hedging our guesses. We're thinking, well, we, we got better numbers, we got better military, we got all this stuff, and uh, you're taking a big step of faith. But when Jesus says, fear not, I've already overcome the world. This victory's already won. I, was, I, spent, uh, I spent the last couple days with a couple other Calvary pastors, and um, one of them, as we were just praying together and uh, talking together, sharpening each other, um, encouraging one another in, in, in ministry. Uh, we were talking about uh, this kind of walking through the Christian life, and uh, one of them mentioned a quote I hadn't heard before, and I don't know if he coined it or got it from somewhere, but um, militant in this life, victorious in the next. And it made a lot of sense to me. He wasn't talking about militant like, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, antithesis of today's politically correct world. Uh, we're talking about militant in, uh, say, Lord, you've given us, you've given us these truths. We will believe them and follow them with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And though we won't see some of the results now, we'll see the full results in victory in heaven. Militant in this life, victorious in the next. Very, very true as we look at our second point to resolve. So just leaving off with that last point, though, uh, our sure hope in, in 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know, I love again, how many times the Bible says no, for we know that if our earthly house, that is this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul is saying, that's Paul again in, in Corinthians, 
2 Corinthians 5.1. Look, your, your home here, as you battle and, and grab hold of these truths that you're dead to sin, sin doesn't have dominion over you, you're going to feel the weight of that battle because even though you're dead to sin, that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't keep attacking. Right? <laughs> He'll kick a dead body. Won't he? He'll keep attacking and to see if you believe what Paul wrote on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Satan already knows it's true. He knows that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you've been born again, you indeed have not, or you indeed have the ability in Christ, that through you can do all things, to actually resist him and he'll even flee from you eventually. But he won't flee the first time you say no. How many of you, go, how many of you know that's true? He's got a lot of time on his hands. His minions have a lot of time on their hands. And on top of it, your flesh has a lot of time on its hands. But the spirit and the flesh, they war against each other, right? And so Paul, I want to take a look at the next point as, as we move through uh, under resolve. We look forward to this future in heaven. We believe by faith that we're, we're dead to sin. We believe by faith that we're baptized into the very resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. We believe these things. We believe that God has given us the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But we have to resolve to do it. We have to resolve to do it. You have to reckon yourself dead to sin. And what does that mean? You can't give it any air to breathe. You can't give it any air to breathe. It's dead unless you get, it's dead unless you put it back on life support. And I put it back on life support. And we start pumping it with heart. <laughs> like, we'll get you back alive. C.S. Lewis said, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try and fight it. We never find out the strength of the evil pulse inside of us until we try and fight it. It's there. We wish that Jesus would have, even though he says, hey, you can, you're, you're dead to sin. You can say no to it. When it knocks on your door, you say, I'm dead to you. You thought that was just a modern term that just came out in the, in the last 10 years. It actually has always, it's been there a long time. No, I'm dead to you. Right? I don't answer you. I don't answer the door to you anymore. You are a dead man, or I'm dead to you. Either way you want to put it. I love, uh, I've read this before, but I'll, I, it bears reading again. It's been a while uh, because it's one of the best little uh, exposés I've seen on this. As a matter of fact, he quotes from uh, Romans 6.11 in the first point. This is uh, F.B. Meyer, lived in the 1800s. Uh, his little um, pamphlet here, The Blessed Life, Trusting Christ in Your Christian Walk. And uh, he has three principles for Christian victory. And the first one comes right out of Romans 6, verse 11. Likewise, you reckon yourselves dead uh, indeed to sin, but alive to Christ. He says the first one is you must count yourself dead to the appeals of sin. And he says this, he says, sin has no power over a dead man. Dress it in its most bewitching guise, yet it never stirs him. Tears, smiles, words, blows alike fail to awaken a response from a cold corpse. No appeal will stir until it hears the voice of the Son of God. So he said, first of all, remember, believe by faith that you're dead to sin, and treat it that way. God looks on us as crucified with Christ and dead with Him, Galatians 2.20. The second point he mentions, and I love this too, as soon as you're aware of temptation, look instantly to Jesus. As soon as you're tempted. Now, this takes practice. Do you realize that everything in the Christian life... Remember, back to the word disciple. Disciple means discipline. Sports teams practice. People who get really good at piano practice. People who are good at, good at violin practice. People who are good at, good at crocheting, which I'll never do in my lifetime, practice. Right? Whatever you get good at, you practice. Well, we don't get good at being a Christian. We mature. We grow. As opposed to the word good, 
that we apply to uh, you know, athletic or musical or literature or things like that. In the Christian life, we, we don't use the word good. We would use maturing and growing, right? So you mature and grow according to exercising the very discipline that the Lord has told us. So this takes practice. I've been saved since 1995, and although I far more now immediately look to Christ when I'm tempted, I don't always immediately look to Christ. Is there anyone here that has looked to Christ every single time they've been tempted in the last month? I mean immediately. I didn't say you didn't look to Him eventually, but I mean immediately. It takes practice. And over time, the Lord... The more I look to Christ immediately, the more I don't forget to look to Him immediately. Therefore, I stumble a lot less. Not that I don't stumble, but I stumble less. And I become more and more aware that sin doesn't have control over me anymore. It's Satan trying to still convince me that there's some kind of noose and handcuffs around me when Jesus said there's not a noose and handcuffs around you. You would have to place them on yourself. They're not on you. Look to Jesus first. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? And this isn't just with sin now. Uh, I have had to learn to anything. Let's say you let's say you immediately, for some reason, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you just don't feel happy. You feel down. It happens. It happens to every person. Even the most, even the most a uh, happy-go-lucky person you've ever met will sometimes wake up and they're just down, and they don't know why. You have to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You have bodily pain that is difficult. You have to look to Jesus. And, I, and I, the longer I do this, I realize He really does. He becomes so much larger than your problems or your feelings. You have to take the focus off of the problems yourself, the feelings, and it really does. You, you can't, no other self-help motivator on the planet can really help you through this. Don't believe the power of positive thinking people. Uh, they, they remind me, uh, sometimes if we could see through all of their nonsense sometimes, uh, they remind me of some of the uh, fitness people who have been busted for surgeries, right? We don't need scapegoats and fake things we truly can just look to Jesus immediately with temptation, immediately uh, with anxiety. Immediately we can look to Jesus with physical pain and his grace. Remember he told Paul, my grace is what? Sufficient. It was a life preserver when he got saved. It's a guardrail from sin, but amazingly it's not only that, it's an umbrella in the rain, same grace. Grace takes, grace, as I, I many uh, months ago, I, I taught on grace and I compared grace to salt because salt has hundreds of uses, right? You don't just eat it, but you can put it on roads to melt snow, you, you can do all kinds, you can preserve meat with it. So it takes all these different forms. They put it in medicine, right? Those drip bags in the hospital have salt in them a lot of times. They're going right into the body to, you know, so, uh, to, so people don't dehydrate. All of these things. So grace takes these different forms, but God says, my grace is sufficient. But how do you access the grace? Looking unto Jesus. And that's the second point that Epi uh, Myron. Then the third he says, claim Christ's virtue as your own. This is one I had never saw taught, I guess in the way F.B. Meyer positioned it, and I loved it because he actually says, um, he says, as great as the shield of faith is, there's something even better. It was first taught to me by a gray-haired clergyman in Southampton. Once, he, once when tempted to feel great irritation, he told us that he looked up and he claimed the patience and gentleness of Christ. Now, this is biblical because we've been baptized into his body. We can actually claim it because we're in his body. We're part of his body. So he says, at that, uh, ever since then, it, it became his practice to claim the life and the virtue which he felt a deficiency. In hours of unrest, thy peace, Lord, 
and hours of irritation, thy patience, Lord, and hours of temptation, thy purity, Lord, and hours of weakness, thy strength. I have practiced this, and the more I've practiced this, I kid you not, the length of time that I'm stuck in one of those four quandaries, what were they? Let me read them, the four quandaries. I don't memorize them, but I have them here. The four quandaries were unrest, irritation, temptation, and weakness. Unrest, ever felt that? Irritation, this is men driving down the highway with bad drivers, and that's a light example of irritation. This is moms that have heard the kids say, mom, 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 15 times in a row. Temptation, and then weakness. Those four quandaries. Everyone finds themselves in one of those categories somewhere in the day. Unrested, irritated, tempted, or weak. Right? And he says, in each of those, I claim Christ. I claim Christ's peace. I claim his patience. I claim his purity. And when I start praying that, and if you can start praying that, you'll be amazed to see that Jesus actually answers the prayer. And it's weird. He doesn't change the circumstance nine out of ten times. He just changes you. And all of a sudden, you're not irritated anymore. You're like, bring it on. Say mom ten more times. <laughs> right? I always kid about this because our, our girls will say mom. And then when they say it one too many times, and I just jump chime in, mom, 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 mom. You know, like, I, I can play this game too. They don't say dad's name as many times, strangely enough. Um, but it's true. When I start to pray and immediately claim at Christ, I said, Lord, you are patient. Help me right now to be patient. It's like Jesus shows up on the scene of my heart and says, I was wondering when you'd ask for help. Because otherwise, you were about to really get impatient. You were about to think that standing in this line was really a real worldwide problem. And then you start to put it in perspective. You're like, why do I really care about this? Right? And you start, you start to think, it's like you come to your spiritual senses. And you realize, why am I even tempted by this? Can't give me an ounce of happiness. I, you know, I go walking, I see my neighbor. Man, I, I don't have that. That's covetousness. Right? I immediately say, Lord, that's covered. I claim your purity, and boom, thought gone, move forward. It's a, by the way, it's not even a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to temptation. You know that, right? It's a sin to yield to temptation. You're going to be tempted all the time. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Did he sin? No. Satan tried to show him all kinds of, hey, here's the kingdoms of the world, right? Here, you know, fall off this uh, high place, and you know, you're going to be fine. That's not a sin to be tempted, but it's a sin to yield to it. Galatians 5.16, you know this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the flesh. What happens, Paul will later write in Romans, if anyone ha hath not the Spirit of Christ, he's not of Christ. When we're tempted, not realizing we're dead to sin, and we don't look unto Jesus and claim his power, we're not accessing the Holy Spirit. Because where is Christ? evident and alive in us, it's in the Holy Spirit in us. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have the physical presence of Christ. We have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ, right? He gave us His Spirit. Yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. We know that, but it, He gives us the Spirit of Christ. So we, we actually, when we look unto Jesus, we're doing it through who? Through the Holy Spirit who intercedes and brings this, the Lord's presence right in and says, yes, I'll answer that request. Do you know Jesus is never going to reject a request for things like patience, purity, rest, peace. He's not going to reject those requests. He will reject the request for a new tennis bracelet or something, right? He will reject the request for you to finally be six foot four, 255 pounds of 2% body fat, right? 
Because he said, no, no, if you had that, you'd be really vain, right? And when you're really vain, you'd get into lots of sin. So no, that's not happening for you. But he will, he will answer the right request. But what does he go on to say? We have to be dead to sin, but we have to present ourselves unto Christ. We're dead to sin, verse 13, but present yourselves to God as being alive. So you can't just keep crying out, Lord, your peace, your purity. You have to turn and do the righteousness, do the commandments, do the things that God's asked us to do. This is why if you're idle, not only literally idle, but idle spiritually, it's not going to be long before you're taken under tow, right? I have to replace the same amount of time that I used to, you know, before I was saved, I can't even remember you know, all the things I used to do with my time, but, you know, I wasted a lot of time, and God says, now invest that time into the kingdom. This is why Jesus taught, call, called it laboring in the vineyard, right? If you're not laboring in the vineyard, you'll be drinking in the vineyard. True? Eventually, if you do nothing of what Christ has asked us to do, um, remember that when Jesus gives the parable of talents, he says, cast out that wicked and unprofitable and lazy servant. Because the lazy spirit spiritually will eventually fall fully back into sin. You have to resolve not only to call upon the name of the Lord in temptation, in unrest, in irritation, right? But you also say, Lord, thank you, I will get back to doing your work. Now, that doesn't mean you stop doing your job tomorrow and say, I'm holding a six-hour Bible study here today because I am called to do the work of God. No, no, you're, you're doing whatever it is in the power of the Lord, and you make your tent-making, men, whatever you do for a living, you make your tent-making an illustration of what God has done in your life, and you should be, like Daniel and Joseph, the best illustration of a godly and profitable man. Make sense? And moms, you would actually minister, whether it's stay-at-home mom or if you ladies that have a job or, or have to work in the workplace, you'll do the same thing. You actually will illuminate for Jesus Christ. You'll let your light so shine among men, but you'll work and, if, and say, Lord, I, I will do things that actually speak to your glory. I'll speak to people with grace. I'll speak to people with compassion. I'll speak to people with actual care and concern. And then, when you have allotted free time, time you could use any way you choose, you say, Lord, I'm going to give even this time to you. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to have you in these four walls 24-7. He doesn't even have me in these four walls 24-7. But he'll give you discernment how much time with your family. How much time? Should you be working out for 12 hours a day or... 45 minutes a day. I don't know. I think I have a close answer of those two extremes, right? But the Lord will give you discernment and how, because if you don't reckon yourselves not only dead to sin, but reckon yourselves alive to serve the Lord, Paul's life was nothing but serving Christ. Amen? Moses' life was nothing but serving the Lord. When David take a, took a little time off not to serve the Lord, what happened? Bathsheba and Uriah. That's when, and he was a man after God's own heart that always looked to the Lord for every temptation, every answer. But then he says, you know, I'm pretty good at praying to God. I'm just going to sit up on the, the top flight of the, uh, the uh, palace and pray for the next 12 days while I kick back. He's not going to pray for the next 12 days, is he? We must do things for those of you that are serving in children's ministry or going to Bon Air. Those are good things. They not only, and they encourage you and they instill the continual, uh, you know, uh, biblical mandate to labor in the vineyard, 
to present yourselves, your members which used to present yourself, you know, if it was me in South Florida at 2 o'clock in the morning at a club, now at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm getting sleep so I can be profitable for the Lord the next day, right? As opposed to up all hours of the night when I was back uh, in my unsaved days. Titus 2, verse 12 through 14, I love these passages, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in, the press, in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for his own special people, zealous for good works. What does that mean? Zealous, it means presenting ourselves alive to Christ. Say, Lord, I'm here this morning. I heard another pastor a long time ago uh, say, you know, he basically starts his day like a military salute. Good morning, General Jesus. What do you want me to do to do today? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? Uh, what do you want me to do with free time that I used to squander completely on myself, right? You know, I'm going to sit back and read eight issues of National Geographic. Okay, that's not really sinful. But if you do that long enough, you just forget about God. Make sense? It's not, it's not like it's some really bad thing. I mean, I like National Geographic. But even our hobbies can take us away from God. Amen? It can take us away. So God says, be careful. Reckon yourself dead to these things. Resolve to what? Well, he goes on to say, to be a slave to righteousness. He says, you used to be slaves to sin. You used to be slaves to sin. Um, you were free in regard to righteousness. Free in regard to righteousness. Hey, I'm free from having to do any righteousness. I remember when I was... Uh, when. when me and my buddies, we were unsaved. I look back and some of the dumb things we used to do, uh, I had this one friend, I mean, when we would go out partying, um, the guy was a kleptomaniac when we partied. And, and he would do it just for sport. Just grab anything. Not even stuff he needed. And it was just because he, he was, and so was I, I'm not pointing the finger at him too, he was completely free of righteousness. There, you know, and we were like you know, early 20-something, getting into lots of trouble, and it, just so free and unrighteous, so, you know, righteous was nowhere near, that, uh, you know, car was unlocked, reach into Mercedes, just grab something, walk on down the road you know, with, a, with a, a can of something else in the other hand, thought nothing of it. And, I, and we thought nothing of it. We just thought he was funny. Now, I'd want to wring his neck, right? I'd want to wring my neck because we were just completely lawless. And at that time, we were slaves to sin. We didn't have anyone to stop us. We couldn't stop ourselves. We did anything we wanted to do. And the only thing that stops some people, that's why we go to Bonaire, is the police, Right? And even that doesn't stop some people. In Boston, you had to bring in the FBI and the, you know, the, the ATF. and everything. Even police don't stop some people. Why? Because eventually they are so lawless and they have no bearing and no understanding of right and wrong. They do anything they please. But then when Jesus gets a hold of a heart, he says, now you're a slave to righteousness. But the cool thing about Jesus, he wants us to become a self-sacrificing, like Isaac willingly laid down for his father. And you and I should willingly lay down our lives for Christ just as he willingly laid down his life. We become a self-sacrificing slave. But remember, everyone, I'm going to touch on this Sunday with an, our Exodus text has an overlap to this, uh, what we're talking about here. Um, everyone's a slave to something. Don't let anyone at work fool you. Everyone's a slave to something. The question is, are you a slave to God or something else? Because everything else is a golden calf of some description. True? It's either of your own fashioning or somebody else made it. Right? Not everybody made the golden calf, but a bunch of people worshipped it. So some make it, and some just worship it. Some are just followers of it, and some actually are helped design it. But everyone's a slave to something. Jesus says, when I save you, now you're a slave for me. You're my servant. But the cool thing is Jesus doesn't just call us a slave. He calls us his friend. How many in the, in, in the world at that time did anyone call slaves friends? That was a foreign 
concept. But Jesus said, if you will resolve to serve me, you'll have no worries. You can walk into any situation and I will protect you from the temptation, the irritation. You'll be able to look upon me. And by the way, even though you'll still be my slave, I'll also call you friend. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's Jesus and why we resolve to follow him. Last thing we'll close with, we close with reward. With this reward, um, he tells us, and that Paul tells us in the end of the chapter here, but now being set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have f- your fruit to holiness. And the end is everlasting life. The fruit unto holiness. No more empty serving of yourself. We have a fruit that is the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, love, joy. You know, the world can't even buy these things. Another thing, when I was in South Florida, I don't know why I have so many South Florida stories tonight, but uh, I don't know, they're just coming to my mind. When, I, when Sarah and I were uh, living in South Florida, she had this friend in college um, that was her, like her best friend. We were unsaved at the time. Uh, but looking back, I remember uh, her friend's parents were really wealthy. The mom owned a, a, a well-known advertising agency, did a lot of uh, big-time, had a you know, big-time Fortune 500 clients, beautiful, beautiful office overlooking Miami, and her father was a high-priced attorney. And uh, we used to love that because uh, they, they would give us sweet uh, floor seats to the Miami Heat games, and so I, I got to be a big shot from time to time and go in there and, and I put Sarah on my arm, and you know, this was before we were saved. So, you know, vanity was something that really was attractive to an unsaved person, right? And we really enjoyed all that, but it, you know, it was interesting. They had all this money and they, they lived on a beautiful island uh, that was nothing but celebrities and multimillionaires, and, and uh, you know, um, but the mom would get really depressed on a regular basis. This was the, the, the owner of the advertising agency. She'd get, she would get really depressed. And the way she solved it every time was to say, all right, she would just tell her staff, I'm leaving and I'm going shopping. And she would. She would go drop like $15,000 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a new Louis Vuitton purse or something else or something like that. And it would give her a sugar high. She was fine for like three or four days. And then the process would have to start all over again. And this is the way, that kind of fruit isn't really fruit, is it? We have fruit, we have joy that cuts through ice like an ice cutter cuts through the Bering Straits. Just plows through, doesn't it? This is the kind of fruit, Jesus said, if you will recognize what I've done, if you resolve to stand in it and to call upon the name of the Lord and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll give you real peace. Not the temporary kind that you have to buy with a credit card, not the temporary kind that you have to buy at the bar, not the temporary kind that you have to buy at the strip club, not the temporary kind that you have to do something that actually helps you forget you're on planet Earth, but something that helps you walk straight through it, through a hail of bullets. That's amazing stuff. That's amazing grace, isn't it? It's another form of grace. It's like a body shield. He says, I'll give you the fruit. And then you'll actually, your, your mind will actually have the mind of Christ. You'll actually have joy when people say, how can you be happy right now? I don't know. Jesus does it. <laughs> and you won't be able to describe every ounce of it. You'll just tell the truth. You'll just speak the truth. You'll just speak these things. Uh, you won't have a restless mind. You'll have a mind at rest. But if you're trying to make this world your home, well, you won't recognize what Christ did. You won't resolve, and you won't see the reward of growth, of peace. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. We'll have the fruit in our life. Jesus said in seven, uh, Matthew seven seventeen. even so every good tree bears good fruit. Good tree. Are you a tree planted by the rivers of, uh, rivers of water? Psalm chapter 1. And that fruit, which is in both, and you can read in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. But this fruit of eternity, 
He goes beyond that. It's not only the fruit of holiness, which is a holy walk through this world, which is a walk of peace and joy, which is a walk of purity, but he says the end is everlasting life. I can't, you know, I'll close on this. I can't believe the things that people, I can believe it because Satan tries to convince people to only focus on, put blinders on, don't think about eternity and don't think about sin and your life. Just think about, just think about the things you can see and touch and taste and feel right now. And yet people will, um, you know, people will uh, invest a lot of their money to hopefully cash in on Wall Street when they finally retire. Or they'll put it into a life annuity plan. Or they'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll work on something uh, for their physical health or something like that. Though, so I'll be really healthy and able to golf the rest of my life when I'm 60. But, you know, as Ray Comfort at the back of his track, remember the Beatles song, When I'm 64? Well, only two of the Beatles made it to 64. They wrote that song, and it made a lot of sense to young men to write, when I'm 64, and they thought, yeah, it's going to be funny, we're all 64. Two of you won't make it to 64. So what happens then? But if you have eternal life, you realize, well, my reward, even if, even if I don't see people that are trying to make earth their heaven, they have to put out of their mind anything else of eternal value. But you and I know that is a sure hope, absolute victory. And uh, you know, I hope this makes sense to you. Um, I'm trying to give a encapsulate. You know, Paul has put a, a lot here. There's a lot of meat for chewing on. You can go back and read some more of this yourself. But uh, you know, I see these things as truly, like I said, I, I couldn't preach this chapter with no born-again experience and walking it out over the last, you know, 17 years. But now I've seen that this grace really does transform. Amen? I hope you've seen it too. Let's close in prayer.